Now hear a reading from Genesis 29, 1 through 30. So Jacob moved on and came to the land of the eastern people. He saw in the field a well with three flocks of sheep lying beside it. Because the flocks were watered from that well, now a large stone covered the mouth of the well. When all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone off the mouth of the well and water the sheep. Then they would put the stone back in its place over the well's mouth. Jacob asked them, my brothers, where are you from? They replied, we are from Haran. So he said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? We know him, they said. Is he well, Jacob asked? They replied, he is well. Now look, here comes his daughter, Rachel, with the sheep. Then Jacob said, since it is still the middle of the day, it is not time for the flocks to be gathered. You should water the sheep and then go and let them graze some more. We can't, they said, until all the flocks are, flocks are gathered and the stone is rolled off the mouth of the well, then we will water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel arrived with her father's sheep, for she was tending them. When Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of his uncle Laban, and the sheep of his uncle Laban, he went over and rolled the stone off the mouth of the well and watered the sheep of his uncle Laban. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep loudly. When Jacob explained to Rachel that he was a relative of her father, and the son of Rebekah, she ran and told her father. When Laban heard this news about Jacob, his sister's son, he rushed out to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban how he was related to him. Then Laban said to him, you are indeed my own flesh and blood. So Jacob stayed with him for a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, should you work for me for nothing because you are my relative? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters, the older one named Leah and the younger one Rachel. Leah's eyes were tender, but Rachel had a lovely figure and beautiful appearance. Since Jacob had fallen in love with Rachel, he said, I will serve you seven years in exchange for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban replied, I'd rather give her to you than any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob worked for seven years to acquire Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because his love for her was so great. Finally, Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife for my time of service is up. I want to sleep with her. So Laban invited all the people of that place and prepared a feast. In the evening, he brought his daughter Leah to Jacob and he slept with her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpha to his daughter Leah to be her servant. In the morning, Jacob discovered it was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, why in the world have you done to me? Didn't I work for you in exchange for Rachel? Why have you tricked me? It is not our custom here, Laban replied, to give the younger daughter in marriage before the firstborn. Complete my, daughter, my older daughter's bridal week, then I will give you the younger one to work too, in exchange for seven more years of work. Jacob did as Laban said. When Jacob completed Leah's bridal week, Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant to Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. Jacob slept with Rachel as well. He loved Rachel more than Leah. Then he worked for Laban for seven more years. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, in this moment of silence, speak to us about your word.
Lord, we come before you and your word with confidence that uh, in every story, your spirit is working, teaching, moving, exposing us, calling us deeper. And so, Lord, we ask that you open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear. Give us hearts to believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, church. Uh, it's good to be back with you. Hey, I saw that. Okay, oh, cool. Uh, back with you down here. Uh, for I know that there's at least a couple who came looking for us last week down here at 9, and we were upstairs with Bethany later. Um, so uh, that was a wonderful service. Um, before I get into the sermon, I just... I want to say thank you. This church family has been uh, so kind uh, to my family and I as we have said goodbye to Von Neal, my grandmother, um, who ordinarily would be sitting like where Jenna and Truett are sitting. And so um, thank you. Thank you for your just your love for us. And um, we will be holding a service sometime near the end of next week, the week following this week in the teens. But we're still working that out with the, uh, the facility where she wanted her service to be. So stay tuned for that. But um, she loved you. She loved this church. And, um, and I've just, uh, you know, thank you for walking with us through that. Now, uh, we're, we're in our study of Genesis. We've, of course, been here since last fall. And we'll be here till next fall. And that's about when we'll end. Uh, so we're flying through it. Um, I mean that seriously. There's a lot. But this is kind of an odd passage for Pentecost Sunday. Um, today, the church around the world, uh, especially in more traditional churches, are celebrating the gift of the Spirit to believers. God's personal, relational presence that empowers us, guides us, provides gifts for our edification, and above all, is drawing us and others through us to King Jesus. That's the Spirit's work. That's how you can tell when the Spirit is working, is when your attention goes toward Jesus. It's a wonderful gift. Jesus said the gift of the Spirit is better than having Him in the flesh with us. The gift of the Spirit makes the sadnesses that we've seen in Genesis come untrue. In fact, the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit pours out, it's like a reverse Tower of Babel, right? You know, that day, the people tried to go up to God, and then God scattered their languages. On the day of Pentecost, God pours out on the people, and they find, you know, across languages, they can understand each other as they proclaim the glory of God. The gift of the Spirit is worth celebrating, and yet we're just plowing through Genesis, and so we arrive on a day of celebrating the Spirit at a story where at first glance, God seems to have just wandered off stage. And it's, people are left to do it on their own. Uh, they do it their way. You know, you see Jacob and Laban especially trying to get things done in this passage, driven by, you know, lust or greed. They lean, they lean on the tried and true human skills of manipulation, deceit, 
pride to achieve their goals. Fourteen years transpire in our text, and there is not a single mention of God. The same God who in the passage just before this appeared to Jacob in a dream that shook him, and he marks off this place as, a, you know, the house of God. He's, he's got to have this dream fresh in his mind, and he never once turns to God. This passage, in other words, is very much like normal life. Normal life. It's just very much like a normal day where we don't really think about what God might be doing. Yeah, I, I get it. There's some cultural weird things in this passage. Polygamy, <laughs> for one, uh, or marriages that are more like business deals than anything rooted in romance or tenderness, although there is some romance in this passage. But the most notable detail of this passage is that God is missing. Where is he? I think you can join me in feeling the weight of normal life where it feels like just the normal person is out for number one, looking out just to get theirs, to, to figure out how to you know, meet the needs that they feel like they have. Many of you go to work in places where that's just the water that you're swimming in, right? People are just trying to advance themselves. And frankly, it might be looked on with skepticism if you felt a higher purpose or were seeking the common good or, or just plain old selflessness and you thought maybe we should do things that cost us a little bit and help our customers. Um, instead, you see people desperately working to gain and keep their power over others. They're uh, compelled by their income, the bottom line. They, that will justify almost anything, right? I, I wish I could say actually that the church is exempt from this mentality, but the last two weeks in the news have, have exposed us yet again. The largest denomination in the United States, you know, was found to have systematically silenced victims of, abu of abuse and, and ignored and even allowed abusers to, uh, uh, to operate in their congregations. And what is underneath all of that? Not, not, a, not a love of abuse or a, a hatred of the, those who were abused, but self-protection. That's what it was, the desire, we avoid litigation, this desire to protect ourselves, not, not a longing to see what the Spirit of God might be doing. You, you might know more, you might know that the people that I'm talking about or the name of the denomination have already given too many clues, but I, I, I don't need to even say it because that particularly tragic act of faithless self-protection is just the tip of an infinite iceberg that, um, that I'm part of, surely, in many ways. Faithless self-protection is, is just what people do. It, it seems like it's our fallen default. Several years ago, uh, some clever pastor, author, and I, I couldn't re remember who coined this term, functional atheism. And I'll bet you guys have heard that term, functional atheism. 
Now, this is believers who live as if God's not around. We feel able to live our lives without God's help. I think this is a tragic symptom of being the wealthiest and most privileged society in the history of planet Earth. We just feel like we've got it. Gosh, even some of the poorest amongst us in the U.S. anyway have access to luxuries that Pharaoh Solomon or Caesar could never have imagined. Like, we, gosh, air conditioning, man, that's nice. Two weeks ago, um, after service, we had an elder meeting, and, um, and the, the Wi-Fi was out. Some of you may have known because you were like trying to scroll things during the sermon, but, um, but we found out at the start of the meeting and, um, and it threw me off so bad, you guys, like late, I was going to bed that night, still feeling stressed because like the first hour of our meeting was like, like this desperate attempt to find the things in the cloud that we needed and, you know, order our lunch. <laughs> Um, gosh, like that, that type of stuff we make ourselves dependent on and we notice when it's not there. I wonder, it, it took me a lot of work in this passage to just, to stop and just notice, wait, God's not here. A lot of times during our confession, the, the, in the mercy of God, I'll, I'll be thinking through all the different things that I did in my pastoral capacity that week without ever saying, Lord, what do you want to do in this? Submitting to him. Genesis 29 draws our attention to Jacob's self-reliance. It's a dissonant echo of a story that happened recently in Genesis in chapter 24, Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, sends his most faithful servant to the same place, Haran, to find a wife for Jacob's dad, Isaac. And this servant goes, and as he goes, what do we see again and again? This servant is just soaking his experience in prayer. He pauses and asks God to, you know, gives the journey to God. He makes this oath to Abraham. He, he, he lays out in prayer. Here's the specific criteria by which I will know that it's you who have chosen a certain woman to be a wife for Isaac. It's, I mean, it is remarkable how much faith. Like Jacob, he waits at the well, perhaps this very same well. And he's humble in his approach to the locals. He's respectfully seeking God's hand. Each step of that story was a celebration of God's providence. The more the servant looks for God's hand, the more he sees it. And then he, to everyone he interacts with, he tells like, this is crazy. I prayed for this and it happened and here you are. And, and I mean, even Laban, who's kind of a jerk, we find out, is like, I can't deny it. God's, yeah, God's working there. That was that story. And now with that fresh in our mind, the loudest detail in this story is how differently Jacob behaves, right? Despite his stunning dream in the last chapter, Jacob doesn't surrender his journey to God. 
He's not respectful with the shepherds. I mean, he, he overrides their customs. He doesn't wait for the, their plan for when they move the stone and, and all of that. And when, when he sees the pretty girl show up, he, he wants to show off his strength. And he moves the stone himself. At least that's what one commentator said. I thought, yeah, I, I could see that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, his dealings with Laban are never concerned with God's plan. It's just business. It's all just business. This is the opposite of the spirit-led life. I mean, Jacob is kind of like Lot, Abraham's nephew, who consistently acts in self-interest. And, well, his behavior finally catches up with him. And when we pan out, there is a testimony of the Spirit's work. Not in the sense of, of Pentecost, not the, the beautiful relational partnership that's made available to believers through the death and resurrection of King Jesus, but rather God guiding things. He's advancing his glorious plan through the competing greed of Jacob and Laban and later the competing thirst for affection between Leah and Rachel. That's the next chapter. Look hard enough, and I think we can actually see a way to note God's work behind the scenes when he seems absent. And I hope that, I hope that this week, those days that are the dry days, you might look for God in these ways. I want to just point out three things. God's justice shows up, his providence shows up, and his mercy shows up. So, his justice. Um, one of the great movies of the 1980s, you may disagree, is Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Does anyone remember that movie, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels? Okay, good. Yeah, people who are my age and older. Great. All right. Well, it's starring Steve Martin and Michael Caine, and... Um, and I recommend it, and I'll give a, I'll try to give a, a semi-spoiler, not a total spoiler, okay? Uh, since you're, you're all going to go see it this week. Um, so Martin and Michael Caine are both con men in the movie, and you know Caine is the highbrow, you know, fancy con man, and and you know he's wealthy, and he he you know dupes wealthy women, you know, and gets their money. Uh, whereas Steve Martin is crass, you know, and kind of like vulgar, and 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 his tactics are basic and and dramatic. And for a time, they actually form a little partnership, but you know their relationship goes sour. Two con men, no no big surprise. But then a wealthy heiress comes to town. And she's, you know, so wealthy. And so the, they're like, perfect. They decide to have a competition. Who can get 50 grand out of her first? There's the premise of the movie. Well, here's the soft spoiler. The movie ultimately delivers, delivers bittersweet justice because the con men get conned. Every sneaky trick that they pull off is actually drawing them deeper into a web that they have no idea they're caught in. It's, it's great. And that, you guys, is exactly what happens to Jacob in this story. Exactly. He thinks that he is working everybody. He thinks he's still working God. Remember, he made a deal with God. You know, he, he has this dream. The glory of God shows up. He's like, 
yeah, God, yeah, if you give me all that and throw in food and clothes, like, yeah, maybe if I make it back here and I'm wealthy and alive and, and all that, maybe you'll be my God. That's, he's like working God, all right? And then he sees this, this woman, you know, who has a, a fine figure. We don't know about her eyes, but has a fine figure. And he, he's like, all right, that's my next con. I'm, I'm after her. So here he is at the well. He's sizing up the locals. He's trying to figure out what they're doing, why, why they're not, you know, moving the rock and feeding the, the sheep. And he begins to exert influence and, you know, and wow, then he sees her. Rachel's the daughter of Laban. That's Jacob's uncle. It's perfect. After all, Isaac and Rebekah have sent him here to, to marry into the family, so to speak. And, and, you know, they're disappointed with this big brother Esau who married foreigners. And so this is another chance for an edge over his brother, one more way to ensure that the blessing will be his. But Laban, he's a clever guy. You know, he, maybe he's impressed with Jacob's strength, but he brings Jacob into his home and he's like, you know, it, it, I, wanna, I want you know, to put you to work. He's like phrases it as if it's respectful, but culturally, this is very disrespectful that he would welcome a family member and then put them, make him one of the household staff, so to speak. And yet he kind of, he works the system with Jacob and Jacob thinks he's working the system back with Laban, right? He's like, oh, sure, yeah, but here's my wages. You know, I, I want to marry Rachel. Laban says, in effect, sure, you can marry her without saying anyone's name, you know? You can marry her. Um, and so seven years passed, you know, it's the romance is there. Oh, it felt didn't even feel like any time. And the wedding day arrives and Jacob parties hard. He's probably intoxicated, too drunk, in fact, to realize that the woman waiting in the tent is not the woman that he's trying to marry. Laban has pulled a switcheroo. There's Leah. He has tripped up the heel grabber. Think about this. Jacob's greatest con to date was when he tricked his dad by pretending to be his older brother. And now Jacob is tricked by a dad who switches an older sister for a younger. Do you see that? I mean, for the Israelites reading this, they're in the wilderness trying to figure out who this God is, how much attention is he paying to our lives? And God's justice is specific. It is detailed. It is down to the, like the, oh, the yuckiest thing that Jacob has done. That would stick in their ears. This, this lesson will echo through God's people, through the scriptures. It will echo into the New Testament. This idea that we reap what we sow, right? This common, it's this common idea. We reap what we sow. Of course, the Psalms in many places in the Bible say, yeah, I, th I think I generally agree with that, but here's this jerk over here who everything seems to go great for all the time. You know, we, we notice the exceptions to the rule, right? But actually, the more we learn about, um, about mental health and emotional health and relational health, I, I think we're learning again and again that even the people who 
uh, you know, materially, perhaps, everything seems to be going great for them. In other ways, they're reaping what they're sowing. Their relationships are falling apart. Their mental health is decaying. Play with fire, get burnt. Laban is God's instrument of justice in this passage. That's one way God shows up, but he also shows up in, in, in the sense of providence. You know, don't get me wrong here. Laban's not a good guy, all right? He's not like doing the Lord's work. He's just being used by the Lord in this. And invested readers of Genesis would find themselves growing a bit desperate at this point because God's made these promises to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob that they're going to have so many kids, it's going to be like stars or sand on the seashore or dust that spreads onto everything. And yet the line stays one guy, one guy each time. You've got to multiply at some point to become like sand, right? So they're wondering, when's this going to happen? How does it, how, you know, how's it going to bring it about? There's a, a scholar I've been using a lot as I've been studying Genesis named Sidney Gradonis. And Sidney Gradonis, you know, as he studies each passage, he, he helps point it to Jesus, which is great. And he also helps us, you know, notice what would the Israelites in the wilderness have, like, gleaned from this passage. And here's, here's the, what he says about this. He says, God can fulfill his promises even through human deceit. That would have encouraged them. God can fulfill his promises even through human deceit. Sleight of hand is not God's best. It's not his best intention, but it doesn't impede his work. Leah and Rachel, together with their maidservants, become the mothers of the 12 tribes of Israel. Out of this mess will emerge the chosen people. And, and that's a big detail for them because they're, the, the Israelites in the wilderness, the first ones to hear this story, like their dependence is their existence depends on God. When I read this in in um, my my great honest book, um, I had this feeling like this is kind of like well, a little deja vu here. I feel like I've seen this before, and so I started flipping back through his little summaries of each other um, chapter, each other scene, and here here's what I noticed. Uh, in the creation story, he says the point is to comfort fearful people that God is the sovereign creator who controls the world's destiny and theirs. Okay. The, the story of the fall, to give suffering Israel hope that the Lord's judgment of sin is tempered by his grace. The story of Cain and Abel, to assure Israel that God is faithful in maintaining human history, in human history, his covenant people. The story of Noah, to encourage Israel with the message that though God judges wickedness, uh, in his grace, he will save a remnant to continue his good kingdom on earth and on and on and on. Each story, when Gradonis ultimately says, okay, what, what do I think God wanted the Israelites in the wilderness to hear, to learn about who I am? He says, in almost every story, you have people who are jerks or failing in different ways, and God who's showing a new way to be faithful, a new way to preserve them. That happens over and over again. Remember, we have to preach the gospel every week because we forget it every week. I mean, that, I, maybe I'll just say that for me. I need to study the gospel and proclaim it every week because I forget it every week. It is always good news. 
It is always surprising news. The Israelites wandering through the wilderness for 40 years, not sure where they're headed. They're hungry now. They're thirsty now. They're, they're facing imminent danger. They could be forgiven for doubting that God would preserve them, right? Especially when you can't find water for a day or two or more. On their most faithless day, maybe the story of Jacob and his faithlessness being preserved would open their eyes. And maybe it can for you if you're in a dry place too. How's he moving? Yeah. Justice, providence. But there's also mercy. It's really kind of at the beginning of the next passage, but I got to dip in there a little bit. Our, our story ends by highlighting a, a really tragic character in this story. The second to last sentence bluntly says, He, Jacob, loved Rachel more than Leah. Consider Leah for a second, you guys. Her life stinks in this story. Like, apparently she's the ugly sister. I don't she has tender eyes. I don't know what that means. But Jacob thinks Rachel's prettier than she is. Imagine being the daughter who can only get married when your dad tricks some guy into marrying you. I mean, she, she is treated like refuse in this. Psalm 34, which we heard in our prayers earlier, offers a glimpse at the heart of God. He draws near to the brokenhearted. He delivers those who are discouraged. The first time God's name appears in this whole story is in the very next verse. We read through verse 30. Verse 31 is where the Lord comes back on stage. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he enabled her to become pregnant while Rachel remained childless. Rachel may be the favored wife of Jacob. She may be the mother of Joseph, who's going to be a really important character later and a great guy. But Leah becomes the mother of Jacob's first four sons, including Levi, who the Israelites would say is the, the father of their priests, right? The father of the, the Levites. And Judah, from whom ultimately would come David, the king, and the line of David, the tribe of kings. You know, Rachel, yeah, she's, she's loved by Joseph and she's the, or by Jacob and the mother of Joseph. But the Messiah comes from Leah, the son of Judah, the unloved and forgotten daughter. Friends, while the rest of the world is pursuing self-reliance, favoring the strong and the clever and the beautiful, some people... And you have felt this in your life. Some people are just run over and left out and overlooked and forgotten. And again and again in scripture, here's the story we're told. Those are the ones God is doing his biggest work through. Again and again. Some, some of you, not, not many of you, Paul would write, are wise by human standards. Not many of you are noble birth. But God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. 
the foolish things to shame the wise. This is the message of the cross. Just as the Lord enabled Leah to become pregnant, he later would enable a poor Galilean girl to become pregnant with Leah's great, 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 and a few more grandson, the Savior of the world, come to deliver us from the deadly labor of self-sufficiency. Friends, I want you at the very end of this to, fit, to, to change the way you think about sin and righteousness. All right, we think about sin as here's the list of bad things that I'm not supposed to do, and righteousness as here's the good things that I'm supposed to do. You know, give generously, don't steal, okay? That's kind of, but, but we can give generously out of self-reliance. We can give generously out of draw, wanting to draw attention to ourselves. We can actually corrupt and damage ourselves and others more in a generous gift. What if our definitions instead are self-reliance or entrusting ourselves fully to the Lord? Finding ourselves weak like Leah and seeing what the Spirit of God will do through us. Surely weakness was what was on the disciples' minds the night that Jesus hosted a Passover meal. When he's explaining to them again that he's about to be arrested and crucified, and they still, it just doesn't even make sense to them because the Messiah is supposed to win, right? I mean, it's a, it's a difficult supper for them. But on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he begins talking about the strength that will show through his apparent act of weakness. He takes the bread, and when he gives thanks for it, he breaks it and says, take this and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. And in the same way, after supper, he takes the cup and says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Every time we eat this bread, or drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim his weakness that showed the Spirit of God unlike any other. Friends, why, why was Jesus capable of calming the waters or multiplying the bread or, or giving sight to the blind? Because he was fully surrendered to the Father. He showed the Spirit's strength in his weakness. So, you cannot be strong enough to come to this table. You can't. Church, if you think that there's something that you've done that is impressive enough to God to earn a piece of him, that's the only way you've disqualified yourself for the table. The way we come to this table, hi kids, welcome back. That's the best entry to the table I've ever seen. Yeah. The way we come to this table, you guys, only way is empty-handed. Empty-handed. Desperate for his help. Like Leah. Lord, thank you. That in a story where we see people being people, where we see people using and manipulating and cheating each other and trying to get the edge on each other, that even in that story, we can see you moving. You at work, even in that story. And I pray, Lord, that we would be a people 
thanks to the gift of Pentecost, who intentionally surrender to you and are weak so that you can be strong. In Jesus' name, amen.